Okay, we're on high. This is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Wolfcast. We are excited to be joined by Manoj Gobalkrishnan, the founder and the CEO of Algorithmic Biologics. This is definitely something we want to know more about. Manoj, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Hi, Michael. It's uh, super excited to be here. I'm super thrilled to be on. Thank you so much. Before we jump into the main part of this conversation, which I think is going to be fascinating, at least for me, let's get a little bit of your background for some context. Sure. So uh, I began my career as a computer scientist, uh, did a PhD in computer science. It turned out my advisor had a joint appointment in molecular biology. And before I knew it, in my first week of PhD, I was part of a lab mixing DNA molecules, building DNA nanostructures. And uh, so uh, it, I had a very interdisciplinary PhD where a significant portion of my time was spent in the molecular biology lab. And the major portion still was spent uh, sort of doing math and computer science. And since then, I've been a faculty member now for 14 years, working in this field called molecular computing and DNA computing. And most recently, I have started this company, Algorithmic Biologics, and I have leaped in with both my feet into this completely new journey. And where are you on the faculty right now? So uh, that uh, journey has, uh, for me, it has come to an end. Yeah. Yeah. But what was the name of the university, sorry, where you were on the faculty? So I was a faculty member at the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research for about seven years and wow. then at IIT Bombay for about seven years. Okay, IIT Bombay, nice. Both both pretty amazing universities in their own right, but research universities as well. I just want to establish this, right, so people understand. Uh, I talk a lot about the IIT system in India because I think people should know more about it. It's one of the most impressive sort of schooling and educational systems in the world, if not the most. And of course, IIT Bombay, the flagship. So awesome stuff. Right. Is it possible to do molecular biology and not actually understand computer science at the same time? Like, does this give you an incredible edge? So I would say, yes, definitely. Most people who do molecular biology are not thinking of it as computer scientists. Right. And so the no number of people who think of it with, from the perspective of computer science is a handful. So that is a perspective, I think. I personally believe it has a lot of potential. I believe that that lens into biology is really going to make a big difference. Uh, because if you think about it, at some level, a cell is a bag of molecules. And there are other bags of molecules that are less impressive in their in the sophistication of behavior they display. And we draw this line between living and non-living systems to demarcate these kinds of bags of molecules. But we have never really managed to say uh, what that line is. We have never managed to say what distinguishes living systems from non-living systems in some clear, precise way. And if I make a sincere effort in that direction, uh, the best definition I can come up with has to do with computer science, has to do with the ability to perform algorithms and because of the performance of those algorithms generate the sophistication that we see in living systems. So talk to me about this. What do you mean when you say a non-living system versus a living system? And then we'll get to the algorithmic side of it as well. But I just want to make sure that I understand what you mean. Right, right. So if you think of... Uh, 
questions like you know how does a seed grow into a tree yep right so this is a question that we have asked ourselves uh, as humanity for thousands of years and not had an answer but we have had an answer we have been sitting on an answer since the day that we discovered the structure of dna we now know that Uh, dna contains instructions for making a tree and that dna is in every cell of the seed inside the nucleus so we now know a lot about this question which we did not know for thousands of years so we see this ability right we've always seen this ability to create incredible sophistication right so seed being able to grow into a tree or all animals being able to reproduce the bounty of nature every culture has had this kind of worshipful attitude towards uh, nature and what it can produce right on the other hand if you look at what goes into a cell it's molecules and if you take similar molecules scramble them up right an egg versus a scrambled egg are completely different things right yep. they are the same set of molecules more or less but an egg can has the potential for life a scrambled egg is uh, maybe good for feeding you but it's 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 not got the same kind of infinity within it that an egg contains right go, the infinity of possibilities yeah. right so yeah so i i think uh, that is what one seeks to capture when one wants to draw this line between living and non living got it uh, but it turns out to be incredibly hard because you look at something like a virus and then we have never been very sure whether to call a virus living or non living uh, because it needs a host to replicate Richard Dawkins made this famous kind of thought experiment where he said uh, should i call a piece of paper living because in the presence of a xerox machine i can make a photocopy of it right and so in some sense it can self replicate in the right environment and how different is that from a virus you get into all these kind of you know philosophical questions about where to draw the line where to demarcate and so on Is there a place where the line blurs? I mean, I guess the virus is a really good example, right? Because it needs a host, but once it has a host, the host does it different than the Xerox machine, right? Or the photocopy machine. Somebody's got to press the button to make the copy. Someone's got to choose how many copies happen, right? It doesn't if you just put it there and close it and walk away, it doesn't replicate on its own. It can't reach its hand around and press the button to replicate. But I'm guessing, and again, you're an expert here, but the virus once it has a host can replicate on its own can also mutate right so it means that not only is it are you photocopying it but it's actually rewriting what's on that piece of paper and then changing it and then replicating is that a fair comparison well i i think uh, some people would disagree with that go ahead so a bacterium or you know any kind of host that a virus needs to replicate mm mm-hmm. is actually fairly sophisticated and doing a lot of the work go ahead uh, so uh, the equivalent of putting a sheet of paper into the photocopier and waiting for the photocopy to come out processes as complex or maybe much more complex have to be carried out by the host cell for the virus to be able to replicate so that by itself is not a very satisfying analogy as for the possibility to mutate uh well i mean whenever you take a photocopy the pixels are not being reproduced exactly you are generating mutations uh, now if there is a selection process in there so dawkins famously made this analogy with you know you take a blank sheet of paper you make a photo you make 100 copies you take that copy which looks the closest to some target photograph you have with you and then you again make 100 copies of that 
and you pick that one which has the most pixels in common with what you want. You do this for a few generations, you end up with a copy of your photograph without ever putting your photograph into the Xerox machine. So in some sense, there are, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a clear line. It's hard to say. Uh, and so I think the consensus more or less in the scientific community has been that there is no line. There is no clear distinction that one can draw between living and non-living. There is no sharp line. There is, a there is a quantitative difference. And when that quantitative difference becomes very, very large, it starts to look like a qualitative difference, but there is no line in the sand. There is a continuum of phenomena all the way from living to non-living. Okay. That's kind of the, th that's the answer that I wanted though, right? In the sense that you have to go through that explanation for lay people to understand that idea that maybe there, not only is there maybe not a line, but it's not even a blurry line, right? And the sense yeah. that the whole, in, in this case, in the viral case that you, that you noted, in fact, that cell mechanism is what's happening in there is actually very sophisticated. It's not just hosting per se. It actually yeah. is providing all of these other sophisticated services to that virus. And it's important because, like you said, scientists still haven't even decided, is that a living, what did you call it, a living system or a non-living system? The answer is there is no line that gets drawn there, right? And that's super it's interesting because nice. once you figure, once you start thinking about things in that way, you have to rethink the way you look at, at least for me, cells in biotech. And maybe you can back up a little bit and give a little bit of background for the sort of development of biotechnology as a thing. You don't have to pick a date or a point in time, but just maybe sort of like, if we talk about the industrial revolution into the information revolution, into the, you know, all these kinds of things, if you can do that for biotech as well, sure. and just maybe give that little history for us, that would be super. Sure. So there have been kind of three dates that are particularly noteworthy. And these three dates go in. So if you look at the, you know, top 10 companies in pharma and biotech, yep. and you note down the dates at which they started, it will cluster nicely into these three clusters. Go ahead. So you'll see some companies that started around 1870 or so. So Johnson & Johnson being a famous example there. These companies, uh, what they really figured out, this was the coming together of mechanical engineering and chemistry. And so this gave birth to reaction vessels. So the small reactions that chemists were able to do in test tubes, uh, the mechanical engineers helped them do it on a scale that was industrial. So industrial revolution reaching chemistry. And this gave rise to a bunch of companies starting around 1870s. And many of these names will be familiar if you just go and do a search. Yeah. So can I ask you something? I may do this at every stage, right? Because it's so interesting to me. What changed? Like, was mechanical engineering not a thing or not a well-developed, what's the right word, skill before 1870? Or was it developing long before that? But we kind of hit this point where the Industrial Revolution met mechanical engineering, I mean, where mechanical engineering met chemistry and said, wait a second, if we do some of the same things over here that we're doing in the physical world, in the cellular world, and in the chemi chemical world, we can do things at scale or change things like what happened back then that, that changed this? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I wish I were a better historian and knew the answer. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, I'm curious myself about exactly why that was the right moment in time. Okay. But it turns out, uh, yeah, I mean, something must have happened, right? It, it was yeah. a trigger when things kind of came together. It, okay. It's a great question. Yeah. Okay. 
So what's the next stage? If the first one is this meeting of the mechanical engineering with chemistry, right, in 1870 with companies like Johnson & Johnson, we can go back and do some more research if we're curious about the other things that grew out of it. What was the second one? Right. So, so the next kind of cluster you see is around the 1930s. And this is the period between the world wars. And this is the period when dynamite and fertilizer. So this, this was when uh, we learned to fix nitrogen and then that reached the industrial revolution, right? That reached chemical engineering. And that uh, led to completely new powers that arrived to this industry and allowed some new companies to start and sort of allowed a second phase of growth to happen. Go ahead. And what's the third one? The third one is, uh, yeah, the date you can say 1980s or so. Yeah. And you can talk about companies like Amgen and Genentech and so on. Uh, so now you're talking, now you're talking my language, by the way, these are companies that I, because <laughs> I was in my brain, I was right. just saying, he's going to say Genentech, right? He's definitely going to say it. And you did. So sorry, go ahead. Amgen, right. Right. Genentech. Yeah. Yeah, so, so this was where the reactor gave way to the bioreactor. So this was still uh, the, you know, uh, what mechanical engineers had built for the steam engine, right? That was the big vessel which became the reactor. Now the bioreactor, you fill it with cells and then you manage to tell the cells what you want them to make. You manage to tell them, I want you to make insulin. You manage to tell them, I want you to make some other compound. So that was, in some sense, I would say, the third journey. So just again, let's dig a little bit deeper here. You had mechanical engineering meet chemistry, but it wasn't as sophisticated as having that reactor into the bioreactor. What's the difference there? In other words, and I don't care what changed per se, but how did we figure out, or was it the sequencing of the DNA that had something to do with this, where we figured out, we can now we can mix things together and tell them exactly what we want the end product to be, but we couldn't do that in the 1870s. If you look at the scientific literature talking about biology, mm -hmm. even as late as the early 20th century, uh, you see somebody like a James Clark Maxwell talking about Maxwell's demon and associating it with biological systems. Uh, some other people taking these kind of analogies differently, you know, forward. So there was this idea that perhaps biology escapes the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics. You know, these laws are not applicable to biology. And this attitude, this idea uh, survived possibly till, you know, 1929 or so when Hungarian physicist by Leo Zillar came up with a brilliant paper where one of the premises was arguing that biology obeys the laws of physics and there is no violation of the laws of physics. Uh, from there, you see Schrodinger write his famous paper on what is life. You see Linus Pauling on his quest to explain everything in biology through structural means and that being taken up by Rosalind Franklin and Watson and Crick and leading to you know, the discovery of DNA. So it has been a journey and of course the shifting has happened at a philosophical level first where people have to acknowledge that biology is within the laws of physics and chemistry. And once that philosophical shift happened, it paved the way for uh, certain you know, investigations and certain questions to be asked. So maybe a question we shouldn't ask, it's a little bit controversial, but do we do think that there was this idea in the 1870s and before that, and even up to the 1930s that said, and you're talking about Maxwell, Ste Maxwell Demons, Schrodinger and, and Linus Pauling, 
but that something happened had to happen in the scientific world to say, and I think it was probably some a little bit of people going, there's religion here, which tells us that biology must be special and fall outside the laws of physics. And what we're saying is, maybe not, right? In other words, if it's science, it's scientific. And if it's physics, we're physical. It has to work with us too, which then led to the DNA sequencing, which then changed the way we look at biology and at its core at the way cells interact. Does that make sense? Yeah, so definitely. I think this idea that biology is, uh, you know, we want to believe that there is something special in us beyond the laws of physics, right? Yeah. Everyone wants to believe that. It's a hard psychological shift to make. I don't think as a society we have made it. I think a small group of people made it and uh, their ideas have not yet reached many of us culturally. But yeah. How about you? Have you made that shift yet? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I work in this area, right? So, I mean, it has become a, it has become a way of thinking for me. And, yeah. Somebody said this to me about a year and a half ago, and I cannot get this phrase out of my mind. It's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. yeah. Right? So true. Yeah. 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 So talk to me now, now that we've kind of gone through this very abbreviated history of, mm-hmm. you know, of molecular biology or just biology at scale and understanding how right. computer science into, into molecular biology, and then what did you call it? molecular computing, which I love this term. Right. Where are we now and what are you trying to do with, and you mentioned the word algorithm, so I want to understand why, but what are you trying to do with algorithmic biologics that is different than what's already happened? Right, right. So change of perspective, right? Change of perspective often helps uh, put some light on things, just looking at it as if you're an alien visiting this earth. Yep. And you look at all these people you know, what? Are, whenever we take a molecular test, say for COVID, what are we doing, right? Uh, we are asking questions of soup. That's essentially what we are doing. It's So every molecular test is some soup of molecules. We put in something there. We uh, do some uh, protocol related to temperature or, and we make a measurement. But essentially, we are asking questions of soup. That's what a molecular test is. Okay. Uh, what is a living cell? It's, you know, it's soup. It's sentient soup uh, in a sachet, but it's soup. So somehow when you take this perspective, right, that we know that cells can be very sophisticated. We know that cells which are different in very subtle ways, uh, one can go on to make a blue whale, one can go on to make a butterfly. So uh, at the level of essentially at the level of programming, right? So yeah, so there there is such a manifold of possibilities uh, for how a cell will express uh, and what it will develop into. And when we look at molecular tests, we look at the importance of molecular testing in the world today, uh, whether it is in disease diagnosis, whether it is in knowing more about what's going on in the body, in the food we eat, in the environment around us. Right. We are doing fairly simple things in molecular testing compared to what should be possible. Tell me. And, uh, tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> so... If disease testing, right, or viral testing is is simplistic in relative terms, what can we do or what should we be doing in your mind or in the minds of the people with whom you're working and in the goals that you've set for algorithmic biologics? Like, what should we be doing? Like, what's the exciting thing about this? Right, right. So there is a short term and there is a long term. 
and there is a very long term yeah uh, in the very long term we should you know be trying to build uh, systems that are as sophisticated as cells uh, and that are programmable by us some kind of a universal molecule assembler we tell it what to make it makes it for us that's the very long term in the very short term i think there are opportunities to make molecular testing more accessible i think accessibility is a very big deal right now we are seeing that major parts of the global south uh, do not have access to molecular testing not just for covid but for many other use cases like blood banks and uh, newborn screening and food safety and this is a big problem not only in the global south but also in many cases like we have seen this with uh, covid again right the world is connected if uh, your supply chain starts from the global south you know you're importing cocoa from here cocoa is being grown here and if they have problem with using pesticide more than allowed then that pesticide is still going to get into your cocoa it's still going to get exported yeah so this idea of a universal molecular assembler so when we figured out not between the wars but during the war that we could not split cells but split atoms we figured out a way to create energy at scale that we hadn't been able to do before yeah and we can now do a lot of work at the atomic level to split atoms and put them back together but we don't have a ton of control over them right if we look at the cellular world and the molecular world as well and we say okay if we can create this universal molecular assembler which frankly doesn't feel like it should be an impossible thing right once we sequence dna and once we understand that like you said the combination of cells can either create a blue whale or a butterfly at some level now we have to figure out not just the structure of the dna that creates these but the in the instructions that's embedded in there and how to create those instructions am i getting any of this right yeah it's a programming language but uh, made by an alien civilization that we can't read so uh, i think uh, <laughs> but that's a so controversial think, statement in and of itself right i mean but, yeah so i mean i don't really mean an alien i know what you mean but alien to us yeah yeah, yeah. alien so, meaning something that we don't understand and something that we can't really source today but we know it had to have been created somewhere it didn't just generate itself out of nowhere but are we working is that one of the things that algorithmic biologics is working on is trying to figure out what that language is and then trying to create this universal molecular assembler or is this something that's just so far in the future that you don't think that that's possible so some people are on that track uh, we have not gone down that track my concern with trying to understand the cell is that it's really hard and everyone who works in this and know something about it says the same thing to me that it's really hard i am laying my bets on a bottom up approach where we build the pieces and we bring them together and then we are able to scale up and build uh, sophistication right so compare it to maybe the 1960s where we had the human brain so some so even earlier in right? 1940s there was a john von neumann talking about the human brain mm -hmm. and talking about the future of computing right starting with the eniac and then going forward to possibly a new kinds of devices which he had already anticipated to some extent yep yeah so it did not turn out at that time that we figured out the human brain 
and then built a device to mimic the human brain. Instead, what, the way it turned out was we built these transistors and then we put them together into circuits. We started to be really good at it so that we could pack more and more and more transistors per square inch. Yep. So I, I think the game here is similar. We will be building circuits in soup and we will be able to build bigger and bigger and bigger circuits in soup. And those will not mimic biology in a direct way, but they will end up having the, a similar kind of capacity. The journey to understand biology will go on side by side. And I believe it will be a long journey. If you go back to the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, the beginning of sort of the computer revolution, if you had told most people that there were literally billions and billions and billions and billions of transistors on something that your eye couldn't even see, you wouldn't have believed it. Now, von Neumann and his ilk believed that this was going to be possible, but they probably, over an infinite time scale, that they would have seen it, but they were old when they figured this out or old enough that they couldn't live through it to see it. So the original way that like Turing and von Neumann and all these others decided to build computers early on had this idea that they were just so far ahead of what we have today with like an M1 chip. And you're right. It doesn't mimic exactly what the human brain is doing, but you can feel the growth, right, of this technology growing, getting faster and faster and faster. And the more we develop these chips, the faster we can develop the next generation because they help us do that. Yeah. Yep. But if you create a parallel activity at the cellular level, mm -hmm. right? I don't know whether we're in the 1930s now or we're in the 1990s or in the early 2000s in the cellular world as it relates to the computer world. You can tell me that. But at some point it will accelerate. And this idea that you're building the these building blocks, like what are you working on today? What are you trying to build? Is it just like molecular testing? Or is it below that? Are you trying to build a base below that to make molecular testing and other things easier? Like, what are you working on? You started a company, yeah. right? So you, it's not just about doing research. What are you trying to build yeah. and what are you trying to sell and which industries will use this? Like, where is this going? Yeah, so there is a so there are two sides to this question. Let yep. me kind of handle them. Please. Uh, so there is a product side, there is the market side. So on the product side, uh, we are building modules which will allow a simple computation to happen in the soup. And we are, allow, we are building modules that will allow us to get better efficiencies in how we are talking to the soup. That's what we are doing. And if you look at how far we are in terms of building such modules, no matter what technology you're talking about, no matter what company, people can build about 10 reactions. You know, that's about the limit. That seems to be the limit. Some people in research have built 50 reactions, 100 reactions. But, you know, in a robust way, in the real world, people can build about 10 reactions. That's It's a really small number. So we are trying to take that number from 10 to 100 so that you can build 100 reactions. Those 100 reactions will work as a circuit. And uh, we are building different modules that can do a matrix vector multiplication, that can do subtraction, that can, you know, do simple things like this. And some things for which we don't have a good name in traditional computer science. So there are algorithms called approximate majority and which are very peculiar and uh, which come from the community that has specifically studied computing in these kind of systems. So right. distributed computing kind of community. Yep. And so less well-known algorithms, but very powerful and uh, very... So, so we are building some of those modules 
that's on the product side. On the market side, we are uh, seeing where the opportunities are. What we have already built with uh, the very first thing we built was Tapestry. That's uh, the name of our software solution. It is a molecular compression technology. So it allows us to test a large number of samples with a small number of tests. That we initially uh, deployed for COVID testing because that was a situation where you had to test a large number of samples and uh, you wanted to do it uh, at the least cost possible so that and using the least resources possible. So that technology we are now taking to blood bank screening, we are taking it to food testing, we are taking it to newborn screening. So we are taking it to multiple other use cases which have similarities in terms of large number of samples and a few of them having defects which you want to identify. So first of all, how many people are now working at Algorithmic Biologics? Yeah, so so we've put together a great team. Uh, we have about a dozen people on the team of which about eight of us are full-time and there are five people with PhDs on the team and between us, uh, more than 50 years of uh, experience in deep science and entrepreneurship. So I would say a very strong team. Uh, people located in Los Angeles as well as in the UK So and in India, of course. So people right. located across three different places. Does it change the way, like the more and the deeper you go in building these algorithms, which is starting to sound to me, a layman, like these instructions that you want to give to the cells to tell them what you want them to build. And like you said, you can only do... 10 at scale that's a small number but again how fast is that going to grow it could grow exponentially it's definitely not going to grow linearly it could grow logarithmically right we don't know but it's going to grow fast yeah. and the more you do yeah. and the more people you put on this the more it's going to change yeah so so i i definitely think that whenever computer science gets involved uh, you start to see exponentials yeah. And here, the computer science approach is uh, that of building modules, putting them together. And if the modules are robust, you can put them together, you can make them bigger. And there are multiple other dimensions that come in, dimensions like size in which your reaction is happening, and then uh, what kind of spatial structure you're able to create. And uh, so one of the beauties of the cell is that when you go from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, you find that the cell does this remarkable patterning inside. So there is a lot of geometry that directs molecules to go where they are supposed to go and keeps them away from places where they are not supposed to go. So uh, there are all these other dimensions to play with. And those dimensions, when they come in, each of them will give us a 10x. And it will become easier to control those dimensions when you already have the ability to make circuits. So that's what we are betting on. We are saying create the computational ability. And once you have the ability, you'll be able to engage more and more of these dimensions. Each dimension coming in is going to give you a 10x, going to give you a leap forward. So in that sense, somewhat similar to the drivers of Moore's law. If you look at what allowed Moore's law, you built a chip, you did computation on it, and you could get more information on how to pack it better. So something similar, I think, is what I envision happening here. Do you start seeing the world in a completely different way as you get closer and closer to understanding the language of the instructions that cells either get or give to each other? Like you said, there's a geometry here. I'm a big believer that everything that we need to know exists in nature. We just need to find it, right? So I use math as an example because it's something really easy to understand. 
we don't invent mathematics, we discover it. Does that make sense? And do you, do you disagree with that? So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to answer. I, I think we very much invent mathematics, but when we, you know, sort of uh, erase our own contribution to it, something is left behind. So perhaps there was something to discover. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to say. I think... Uh, Let's use a simplistic example, right? Because it's something that everybody can understand, right? Like the area inside of a circle has a mathematical formula that just exists. Well, I mean, it depends on whether what geometry you're talking about, right? So, I mean, even there, <laughs> exactly, whether the circle is drawn on a sphere or a, on a, you know, if it's drawn on a sphere, the area on the circle happens to be more than pi r square. If it's drawn, sure, sure, uh, sure, on a hyperbolic side, sorry, less and then more. Yeah. Right, but that math we understand as well, right? Yeah, but it's 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 no longer pi r square, right? So you need flatness to even. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So, so, but my idea here is that the flatness of the circle on a flat surface without any of the sort of parabolic um, intrusions is a simple pi r squared calculation that wasn't invented, but was that discovered. It just works and it works everywhere where that exists. When you change the dimensions of it, there's math around it that explains that too. And sure, we have to discover it, but we didn't invent it. And maybe we're talking about different definitions of the word discover and invent, but I feel like what you're doing is you're testing to find the language that cells use to communicate with each other. It's almost like machine language, right? It's talking to itself and saying, Here's, here are the instructions that I'm going to give myself. Maybe that's the algorithm you're talking about on the biologic side. But once you find that or understand it, the power inside of that is pretty intense, no? So, so I would say it a little differently. I would say I take inspiration from biology. I look at the cool things that cells can do and I think to myself, oh, wow, they can do this. Right. Then I ask myself, how do they do this? And right. any self-respecting biologist would answer that question by going and doing experiments with the cell. Yep. I don't do that, right? I kind of go the other way where I sit and I imagine what it might be doing. And then at some point I stop caring whether it's actually doing it, right? I, I'm more interested in what algorithm could give that kind of behavior, whether or not it's actually happening inside the cell. And that algorithm for me becomes interesting in its own right. And it becomes something worthy of being created because of the power that, because of the sophistication of behavior that it can allow me to create. And because of the applications downstream of that, of that, that I can get from there. And when I do this kind of imagining, I may be ballpark correct, or I may be completely wrong in terms of what the living cell is actually doing. I believe more likely than not, it's the latter. I believe that, you know, just like when we started to imagine how the brain works and take inspiration from that. Alan Turing went to this very axiomatic approach, right? He said, uh, I'm going to imagine this machine which has a tape and these very simple moves. And that is my definition of a brain in some sense, right? Anything the brain can do, my machine can do. Right. That was really what he was talking about. So I want to say something similar. I want to say anything the cell can do, my machine can do. But my machine will be this uh, ridiculously simplified version Right, which will have the least moving parts, but can do interesting things. 
But are you convinced? Because here's where the question for me gets very philosophical. And I think the same thing, and I've had this thought for a while on the computer chip side. At some point, there is going to be a collision between the chips we, we can create, our ability to ana analyze those chips using the chips that we create, merging into something that's more closely a living human brain. And if that's true, then philosophically, oh, I see. yeah, so philosophically, we're not there yet. We're not even close, but we're getting there. But on the molecular computing side, on the molecular biology side, what you're saying is you don't, you're not trying to find what that language is. You're just trying to build that axiomatic, simplified machine that can mimic or do what that's doing. But philosophically, it doesn't matter. Because at some so, point, so, yeah. at some point, you'll get there, and then it will be the same. I think. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, uh, but let me try to challenge that with a third example. Go ahead. Uh, more older than the computer. Go ahead. So think of flight, right? The problem of flight. Yep. Where flight is today, right? Whether it is planes or space travel, it's way beyond what birds can do. Yeah, for sure. Yet there are still uh, dimensions of insect flight and bird flight, uh, which we haven't, even with our best aircraft, which we haven't yet either understood or managed to reach. Right. So in some dimensions, we are way, way beyond them because of the materials that we can create, because of the amount of energy we can expend. But in other dimensions, we still haven't caught up. So there is this, uh, I think that will be the case uh, in computing. Of course, we see super fast computers, we see quantum computing, so in some dimensions, computing is always going to be superior to the brain. In other dimensions, it's still playing catch up. Maybe one day it will catch up, but uh, I think there may, one may be surprised, you know, the brain may manage to retain a few mysteries for longer than many people think. I think it will be a similar journey with uh, cells as compared to the kind of, call it synthetic biology or molecular computing that we are building. Uh, we will build very interesting things. We will build things at some point that will perhaps be able to self-replicate and make more of themselves. Uh, we will perhaps even be able to build things that would have the potential to evolve. They would still, you know, because they are built by us, they are built for certain uses. So yep. in some ways, they would be superior. In some ways, they would, uh, you know, there would be tricks that we would not have figured out. Yeah. How far do you think you are away from just like industrial, not, I don't want to say day-to-day -day uses, but like how far away are you and similar companies from actually creating a product that people can then use to do things that the rest of the world would understand and see like in their, I don't know if it's everyday lives, but in their lives. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we are already doing some things that, you know, for example, with COVID testing, yep. uh, we are commercially launched. We have regulatory clearance for our molecular compression algorithm. I understand. We've already tested about 25,000 uh, samples using our algorithm. And uh, this is in the field, right? With turnaround times, with unit economics, people paying us to do this. So we've already done that. We have shown that we can achieve a 10x compression. So we can deliver 1000 results with only 100 tests, that kind of thing. Cool. So it's not a pure uh, scientific, uh, you know, I'm not 
I, I have raised investor money and you know, one thing I've learned is money is expensive. Don't <laughs> it is, it's money. not. It feels cheap sometimes, but it's not. No, but this <laughs> is the point that I want to make is that, is yeah, that this yeah. is not theoretical. Not theoretical. At all, yeah. right? Is, is that something? There are already uses for it. And I love this idea of flight is like such a great example of this, right? Because people understand flight. They get on airplanes. They know it. But a plane is not made out of the same material out of an insect that can literally fly super fast but stop in mid-flight and like make a right-hand turn. And we haven't built anything that can do that yet. Now, part of the part of the reason why is because we haven't necessarily tried or maybe we have, but you know, this is a military application and regular planes don't need this kind of thing, right? So we're not focused on it. But my guess is that at some point we will be able to build that because it exists. And if it exists, we'll figure it out. And I think what you're saying is on the molecular biology side and on the algorithmic biologic side is that you've already started to build products that people are using in places where we already know in molecular testing and COVID testing and stuff like that. And you're right, you can go out and raise money because investors can look at this and see if I put a dollar in, I'm going to get more than a dollar out because there's a product that's coming out at the end of this pipeline and 10 other products that are probably being worked on. That's kind of cool, no? Yeah, so that's why we started with molecular testing because for us, that was the, you know, I think that was the key thing, right? That I could do something uh, using these very abstract ideas that yep. can create value today. And as I build out more and more of these ideas, I can create more and more value. So that was the path that we saw. And that that's what really excited us. It's a big industry. It's a, massive. Uh, you know, yeah, it's about $34 billion in just the molecular diagnostics, another $26 billion in industrial microbiology. And uh, yeah, so uh, it's it's been a fairly conservative, slow moving industry with a few giants sitting in there. Uh, and it's been very difficult to, you know, somehow reach all the different products that uh, need to be reached. But here, I think we are betting that bringing in a programmable approach is going to be something new. Something new. This is going to change the way that cells interact with each other and the way that products get created at the cellular and molecular level. I mean, I think that's the real thing, no? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I, I think I think that's where we want to go. Getting there is going to be a journey. Sure. As I said, we are still, we are now building circuits of size 10 and then going to circuits of size uh, 100. When I say circuits, I mean biochemical circuits yep. uh, as opposed to electrical circuits. And yeah, essentially your soup is doing the thinking for you. Exactly. The same way your algorithms do your trading for you. It's not that different at the mathematical level, it's just what you're applying that math and that science to. Okay, I feel like I could go on with you forever. And what this means is that we're getting really close to the point we're going to have to have just like an entire show on science. That's what you've inspired me to do. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay, this was really awesome. I don't even really want to stop this conversation now, but I feel like if we go on, we could just keep going on. You have to come back. Or maybe one of your other founders can come back. I want to continue this conversation, but I really, sure. really want to thank you. Manoj Gopal Krishnan, hopefully this conversation was as interesting for you as it was for me. I'm sure it was way more interesting for me. The CEO of Algorithmic Biologics, that was awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. Yeah, pleasure speaking.